I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we'll be looking at the first six chapters of the book of Hebrews. I'll be abbreviating my comments on these six chapters of Hebrews. If you'd like to see the entire commentary, please go to BibleTrack.org and look at the reading date of 11.9. As an introduction to the book of Hebrews, first of all, we want to know who wrote the book of Hebrews. I'm relatively comfortable with the notion that Hebrews was written by Paul, not Luke or Apollos or Barnabas. Paul was an expert on Jewish law, and so was the writer of this particular epistle. He's very passionate about showing the Jews that keeping the law was an old covenant concept, but Christ fulfilled those requirements. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. If you'd like to see more details on uh, why I'm convinced that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, then see my notes uh, on BibleTrack.org. Since the Jewish sacrificial system still seems to be intact at the time of the writing of Hebrews, it seems quite obvious that it was written prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. The epistle was written to the Jewish believers who were still struggling with keeping the law after receiving Christ as Savior. So, here's a cute and helpful quote that will help you remember the purpose of this book. Here it is. Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to tell the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews. In other words, the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrew Christians to tell these Hebrew Christians to stop acting like Jews, Hebrews, and start acting like Christians. These Jewish Christians are being told that they need to rest in the finished work of Christ and stop all of their Judaistic rituals that they're trusting for righteousness. Now beginning with chapter 1 where we see that Christ is not an angel, he's better. Verse 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture thou shalt fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. 
But to which did the angel saith he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So in these first 14 verses, the Jewish believers are having difficulty, obviously, characterizing Christ's position with regard to God. So Paul clarifies it right here in these first three chapters. Chapter 1 is intended to dispel the impression that Christ was an angel. Christ was not an angel. He was better. First of all, Paul frames the propositions in verses 1 through 3. Previously, God spoke to our Jewish fathers at various times and in various ways through the prophets. That's in verse 1. However, in these last days, he spoke to us through his son, Jesus Christ. That's in verse 2. Then notice the exactness with which Paul describes Jesus in verse 3 when he says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, set down the right hand of the majesty on high. The Greek word for express image there is character. In other words, Jesus is the bodily form of God. As a matter of fact, I like to say it like this. Jesus is the only body God ever had. I'm convinced that every incarnation of God in the Bible was Jesus himself. In verse 4, the better than angels argument is introduced with regard to Jesus the argument begins with the issue of inheritance, where it says, Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That's a rather simple statement based upon the messianic attributes of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. In other words, Christ has a different purpose than angels, and that purpose is different, first of all, by inheritance. Paul's refutation style here is an academic, logical approach to the supernatural identity of Christ. From verses 5 through 13, he quotes from several psalms that were regarded by the Jews to be messianic, and that's to demonstrate that the work of Jesus on the cross was a fulfillment of those exact messianic prophecies. It's really quite fascinating to see all the Old Testament psalms quotations that he uses, but see Bible track for a list of all those Old Testament quotations uh, with them framed in their proper context. After the string of Messianic quotes from Psalms, it's back to the comparison of Christ to angels, the discussion that began back in verse 4. These quotes from Psalms serve to demonstrate that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and angels serve to testify to Christ, as he says in verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them, who should be heirs of salvation? In other words, angels are ministering spirits and not sacrificial lambs. That takes us to chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, speaking more about angels. Verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape? if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. Verse 1 draws a conclusion based upon the proposition presented in chapter 1, when it says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, 
lest at any time we should let them slip. Those things which we have heard undoubtedly refers to the doctrine of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. In the Jewish community, there would be a lot of pressure to abandon that notion. The angels were true witnesses. Even greater is the witness of Jesus Christ, who was validated by those indicators, we see that in verse 4, those indicators which followed his ministry. The evidence is undeniable. How can someone not be held accountable who rejects this presentation? In other words, as verse 3 expresses it, how shall we escape? Or, to put it bluntly, to ignore the gospel message is to neglect so great salvation. Now reading verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he had put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through their sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil and delivered them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able also to succor them that are tempted. So we see the comparison to angels continues on in these verses. Angels are messengers of God. Jesus Christ was no mere angel, but rather he was the redeemer of mankind. We see that in verse 5. In verses 6 through 8, Paul quotes from Psalm 8, 4 through 6, to demonstrate that God had intended for man to have dominion over everything on earth, but he lost it. Then in verse 9, he makes the case that only because of Jesus taking human form, when it says, made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, only in that aspect will the originally prescribed order of things be set right once again, having tasted death for every man. In further addressing the deity of Jesus, Paul emphasizes in verse 10 that it is Christ for whom are all things and by whom are all things. Now, after trusting Jesus as one Savior, we see in verse 11 that he that sanctifieth, being Jesus, and they who are sanctified, meaning 
believers are all one. He clarifies the point of spiritual brotherhood with an appeal to Psalm 22, where he quotes 22.22 in verse 12. As Jesus was on the cross, he quoted the opening words of that psalm, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Paul then uses excerpts from Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18. He uses those in verse 13. His point in this is this. Believers are united in Christ within the family of God as brethren. He continues in verse 14 by emphasizing that Jesus, by flesh and blood, might destroy him that had power over death. He clarifies that he's speaking of the devil. Therefore, believers are delivered from this death, verse 15. Paul then gives clear differentiation between Jesus and angels in verse 16, where he says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. His office as high priest is emphasized in verse 17 and 18. He took upon himself the form of a man to become our high priest, obviously better than angels. There's a promise in verse 18, and here it is. Jesus overcame temptation and is therefore able to give us victory over temptation. That brings us to chapter 3, a comparison to Moses. Verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, even as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Well, of course, Moses was a hero of Judaism. All Jews had the highest regard for Moses. This chapter compares Moses to Christ. Moses was faithful over that which was entrusted to him, verse 2. And likewise, Christ was faithful over that which was entrusted to him as well, in verses 3 through 6. The analogy there is that Moses was part of the creation of God. 
and of Christ as we are in verse 6. That's based upon the proposition seen in the latter part of verse 6 that those Hebrews adhere to the premise that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament Messianic promises. With that analogy introduced beginning in verse 7, Paul brings up the rejection of God under the leadership of Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And that caused the Jews to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. When they left Egypt, the objective was to reach Canaan, their own land. Upon the return of the spies in Numbers chapter 14, it was a decision time for Israel. And here was the decision. Will you accept the promise of God or will you reject the promise of God? When Israel rejected the promise, that generation of adult men was decreed to die in the wilderness and never reach the objective, never to rest in the land. So here's the analogy that Paul is making in verses 7 through 12. Just as all of the Hebrews who left Egypt did not exercise the faith to the fulfillment of the rest of the promised land, so are there Jews in Paul's day looking for the Messiah who reject Jesus Christ as the same. There's simply no partial credit for tagging along for a portion of the trip. The destination, which is faith in Christ, that's the objective. Just like Canaan was the objective out of Egypt. In other words, good, observant Jews who reject Jesus as the Messiah miss the reward just like those Hebrews that rejected moving into Canaan in Numbers chapter 14. We have a unique set of circumstances in the book of Hebrews with, with regard to terminology. When Paul uses the word brother or brethren, the Greek word adelphos, he may be referring to a blood relationship or a spiritual relationship. Since he himself was Jewish, he considered the Jewish people to be his brethren. However, when Paul uses the unique adjective holy with brethren, in verse 1, it would seem that he is emphasizing a spiritual relationship in Christ. However, in verse 12, it would appear that Paul is referring to his blood relationship where we see no adjective holy with it. There's absolutely no question that verse 1 refers to believers. Paul's description is clear. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, accompanied with the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, he refers to our profession. Obviously, he means to indicate that their mutual faith in Christ is the same faith that he has. In verse 2, we see that Christ, as high priest, was faithful just as Moses was faithful. Jesus is deserving of more honor than Moses. Verse 3, Jesus as the creator, which was established in chapter 1, is greater than Moses as one who is part of that creation in verses 4 and 5. Verse 6 needs some explanation, but Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm unto the end? It cannot be understood properly without a clear view of the analogy that follows. Verses 7 through 11 are comprised of a quotation from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, regarding Israel's rebellion in Numbers 14, following the return of the Canaan spies. So here's the analogy. Just as many Hebrews started out on the journey to Canaan, chose not to actually enter in, so many of the Jews in Paul's day who started out in the journey of Judaism looking for the Messiah will stop short of accepting Jesus Christ as that Messiah. In other words, 
The end is faith in Christ. The Jewish people of Paul's day must receive Jesus as their Messiah as the completion of their quest for God. Thus, the brethren of verse 12 are Jewish people who decline to receive Jesus as their Messiah, constituting their departing from the living God. He continues in verse 13 with a command that they should exhort one another to follow through with the natural end of Judaism, and that is receiving Jesus as Messiah, and subsequently not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, as were the numbers 14 rebels. In verse 15, the tense of the Greek verb genomai, translated in the, in the King James Version, we are made as perfect active to indicate a completed rather than continuing relationship. In other words, we have become partakers, captures the essence of what Paul is saying about those Jews who traveled the completed route from Judaism to receiving Jesus as the Messiah. In verse 15, he revisits the quote from verses 7 and 8 regarding those rebels in, verse, in Numbers 14, who those rebels who hardened their hearts. Paul uses the last four verses, verses 16 through 19, to drive the implications of that story all the way home. Those rebels of Numbers 14 lived for as many as 40 more years without the hope of entering the Promised Land because of the rejection of God on that fateful day when the spies gave the report. Paul concludes his remarks in verse 19 by saying, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. In essence, Paul is saying, don't let this happen to you. The message of this chapter is, do not let your sin keep you from obeying the truth like your forefathers did in the wilderness. In other words, don't reject Christ like your fathers rejected Moses. We see in chapter 4 the penalty of rejection, beginning with verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day in this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limited a certain day, saying in David, Today after song a time, as it is said, Today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now before I read verse 8 here, it's important to note that Jesus is the Greek word Jesus, which is the transliteration of Joshua of the Old Testament. So in verse 8 here, when it reads Jesus in the King James Version, it's really talking about Joshua in the Old Testament. Verse 8, For if Jesus, Joshua, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. 
Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, and find grace to help in the time of need. If it seemed to you that Paul explained that rebellion in Numbers 14, uh, using Psalm 95, 7-11 sufficiently, hang on. He's still not finished. He devotes 11 more verses in chapter 4 to make certain these Jews understand this point. Just being Jewish isn't enough. He actually emphasizes all the points of chapter 3 all over again in verse, verse 1. Don't fall short of the Messianic promise by declining Jesus as the Messiah. In verse 2, the mere hearing of the gospel message is not effective for salvation and did not profit them not being mixed with faith. Verse 3, for we which have believed do not enter into rest. The Greek verb believed is in the aorist tense, which indicates a point in time as opposed to continuous action. In other words, having once believed secures one's rest. In this verse, Psalm 95.11 is once again quoted as it was in chapter 3, verse 11 of Hebrews. The rest from the foundation of the world is meant to accentuate the role of faith as opposed to the works. Verse 4, a reinforcement of the concept of rest as opposed to works is seen here by the usage of Genesis 2.2, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. Verse 5 is back again to a quotation of Psalm 95.11. Verse 6, some entered into the rest and some did not. That's a reference to those who rejected the report from the spies in Numbers chapter 14. In verses 7 through 9, Paul again quotes from 95, Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8, just as he did in Hebrews 3.8 and Hebrews 3.15. But this time to make a different point. Psalm 95 is intended to refer to spiritual rebellion and spiritual rest. The point is made that if Joshua... And he's called, as I pointed out, Jesus in verse 7. If Joshua had provided the final rest, then there would have been no need for David to reference this passage as he did in Psalm 95, 7 through 11. Therefore, the people of God have rest from their works through faith in Christ. And verses 10 and 11 make this point. Seize works, the works of Judaism, but and rather exercise faith in Christ as the Messiah. Don't follow the example of the rebels in unbelief. Rest as God rested on the seventh day. We saw that in verse 4. We find in verse 12 my favorite scripture on God's word, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So how do you get the rest and belief of verse 
verses 1 through 11? Well, it's by the exposure to God's Word. This Word of God is an offensive weapon in and of itself, being a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Verse 13 tells us that no one escapes being revealed by the Word of God. Finally, verses 14 through 16 present Jesus as our high priest. He's heavenly as opposed to the earthly Aaronic priesthood in verse 14. Though he was tempted to sin, he did not do so, verse 15. Therefore, Jesus is the high priest to whom all should go, verse 16. These verses regarding the high priesthood of Jesus lead us right into chapter 5. So chapter 5, how did Christ become a high priest? Let's begin reading with verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity? And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh his honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made in high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal life unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We begin this chapter with four verses that lay a foundation for the Aaronic priesthood. Verse 1, the high priest was taken from among men to offer sacrifices for sins. Verse 2, as a sinful man himself, he, talking about the earthly priest, could identify with sinners. Verse 3, as a sinful man, he offered sacrifices for himself as well as the people. And verse 4, like Aaron, a high priest was called by God. That brings us to verses 5 and 6. Melchizedek is the name to remember here. We first see reference to him in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20, with Abraham. Paul quotes Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 110-4 concerning Melchizedek in relation to the Messiah. He's introduced here, but the priesthood of Melchizedek is not thoroughly dealt with in Hebrews until we get to chapter 7. Let it suffice right now for me to say this, that Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek who preceded the order of the Aaronic priesthood. On the Bible Track website, you'll find an article that I've written on Melchizedek, which will be very, very helpful in understanding this concept. So here are the points made regarding Jesus as our high priest. In verse 5, God made Jesus our high priest. Paul quotes Psalm 2-7 to make this point. In verse 6, Christ's priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. He quotes from Psalm 110.4 to make that point. In verse 7, Christ interceded for us in the garden prior to his crucifixion. We see that uh, prayer in Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. 
And finally, in verse 8, he obeyed his calling by proceeding to the crucifixion to pay for the sins of mankind. The two key verses here, verses 9 and 10. And it says, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. So you see, Jesus was perfect, the only provider of eternal salvation and our high priest. No lesser specifications of Jesus would have been acceptable. These first ten verses establish that Jesus is our high priest after an eternal priesthood established by God himself as opposed to the temporary priesthood of Aaron. At this point in the discussion, Paul takes a detour from the topic to discuss the spiritual state of the recipients of this letter. We see that in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5, talking about the immaturity of the believers to whom he's writing. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. As Paul continues to explain to these Hebrew Christians the concept of the priesthood of Melchizedek, a concept he introduced in verses 1 through 10, he pauses to comment on how this doctrine is a little deep for these readers. They are dull of hearing, he says in verse 11. While they ought to be capable of being teachers by now, instead they are in need of being taught again the very basics, the first principles of the oracles of God, he says. That's too bad, too. They ought to be mature in the Lord by now. But they are like babies when it comes to doctrinal issues. They are in need of milk, in other words, elementary doctrine, before they can understand the meat doctrine, such as the priesthood of Melchizedek. Paul then interrupts this discourse of the priesthood of Melchizedek to deal with the issue of immature believers. He'll pick Melchizedek back up in chapter 6, verse 19. So here in chapter 6, we see that Paul deals with a major lack of understanding among these Hebrew Christians, beginning with chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and of faith toward God, and of the doctrine of baptisms, and of laying on of hands, and of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will we do, if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again into repentance, seeing they crucified of themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, Though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. 
and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In the first three verses, Paul expresses his concern that these immature Jewish believers still had not mastered the elementary principles of the faith. He began this discussion in chapter 5 when in verse 13 he refers to them as babes in the faith. So what are these principles of the doctrine of Christ on which these Hebrew Christians seem to need a refresher? They're in verses 1 through 3, and here they are. Repentance from dead works. They needed to turn from the works of Judaism. Faith toward God. They needed to turn to faith in Christ. The doctrine of baptisms. They needed to understand the differences between the baptisms of Jewish proselytes, the baptism of John the Baptist, and Christian baptism and Holy Spirit baptism. The laying on of hands. That would be talking about the commissioning of ordination for elders and so forth. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. You can see that these were some pretty basic issues of their Christian faith. A lack of understanding on these issues would open them up to false teachers. Then Paul expresses a major concern he has for these Jewish Christians, their impression that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross can somehow be treated like the temporal sacrifices they were accustomed to making when they sinned. Many have sought to deny that the people referenced here are actually saved. But I'm absolutely convinced that these five qualifications described in verses 4 and 5 are intended by Paul to absolutely, positively confirm that he is talking about washed-in-the-blood believers here. Look at these five qualifications that constitute a believer. We see those in verses 4 and 5. Number 1, once enlightened. Number 2, have tasted the heavenly gift. Number 3, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Number 4, have tasted the good word of God. And number 5, have tasted the powers of the world to come. It appears to me that Paul is going the extra mile to make certain that his readers understand that he's talking about saved people in verses 4 and 5. So what's the falling away reference in verse 6? Well, here it is. These Jewish Christians were accustomed to offering another sacrifice every time they sinned. The Christian life just doesn't work like that. Christ was sacrificed one time. It can't ever happen again. Paul is explaining it this way. There is no more sacrifice. So for these Jews who wanted to continue with their Old Testament pattern of sinning, sacrificing, sinning, sacrificing, sinning, you get what I mean. There's only one sacrifice. It's Christ. Therefore, they needed to understand, if you say that the sacrifice of Christ was only good until your next shortcoming or your next sin, you got a big problem. You're all out of sacrifices because Christ was only sacrificed one time. If you take the sacrifice of Christ and apply it to the old pattern of repeated sacrifices rather than accepting the new pattern of once and for all sacrifice, you have no more sacrifice to offer and thus no way back to salvation. So this is a hypothetical scenario intended to show the Jewish Christians that were it possible to have a second salvation experience, it would require that they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. 
That, of course, is impossible. To sum it up, Paul is saying it like this. If you could lose your salvation, which you can't, you could not be saved again because you have used up the only sacrifice that Christ made for salvation. Therefore, it was imperative. They absolutely must abandon their old mindset of sin, sacrifice, sin again, sacrifice again, in lieu of the finished work of Christ once and for all, for all of their sin. Verses 7 through 9 reinforce the role of good works in the believer's life. He is blessed from God as he serves. Verse 8 probably paints a scenario of the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, where believers' works are tried by fire. Verse 15 of that passage says, If any man's works shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Verses 10 through 12 sum up Paul's exhortation here. You Jews who are making this transition from the law of Moses to faith in Christ, you need to follow this path to its logical, scriptural conclusion. Don't get sidetracked by attempting to create a hybrid doctrine that includes a little bit of law and a little bit of faith. Then we see in verses 13 through 20 a different priesthood with a different standard. Verse 13, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Paul cites the Abrahamic promise of Genesis twenty-two sixteen and 17 in these two verses, verses 13 and 14, after God tests Abraham regarding the sacrificing with Isaac upon the altar, he renews his covenant with Abraham. See my article on the Abrahamic covenant on BibleTrack.org. He does this in Genesis 22:16. Quotes God as saying on this occasion, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord. That explains Paul's reference to Paul's point that because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. The promises by God to Abraham were fulfilled. We see that in verse 15. Now, how does that relate to this discussion? Well, here it is. Aaron's priesthood was temporary and earthly. Melchizedek's priesthood is permanent and heavenly. That's why under the Aaronic priesthood, repeated sacrifices were necessary, but only one permanent sacrifice after Christ, the high priest of Melchizedek, order of priest. The immutability of God's oath makes salvation permanent in the believer. These verses confirm our understanding of verses 4 through 6, that salvation in Christ is presented here as permanent and not temporal. Hold on. Here's the tie-in. In verse 18, he refers to two immutable things. 
What are these two things? Well, the first is the promise that God made to Abraham, verses 13 through 17. The other is the fulfillment of God's promise through Jesus Christ, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's in verses 19 and 20. Both immutable things are fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. And that takes us to the end of chapter 6. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.